Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church as we begin our mid-week Bible class. We're in Deuteronomy 6, and um, hopefully we will finish Deuteronomy 6 this evening, and next week we'll be off into Deuteronomy 7. I'm looking forward to both of these because there's a lot of what God has said and what God, the guidance that he has for us. Let's take a few seconds of spiritual preparation. It's our opportunity to prepare before every one of our gatherings, uh, message, messages, singing, and our Bible classes, because it's important for us to remember if there is unconfessed sin in our lives, that it must be addressed so that God the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to assist us, to help us as we progress in our spiritual lives. So let's close our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for your wonderful provision for us. We're thankful that you have provided for everything. Whether there is a concern of disease or a situation uh, nationally, state level, or locally or even within the family. We're thankful, Father, that as our God, you not only are the God of the universe, but you have uh, provided for us a way for us to have a personal relationship with you because we know that you love us and that you have provided for us. We know that you are concerned about the details of our lives. And we're thankful, Father, that not only are you aware of them, but you have provided for them. We ask, Father, for a continued blessing upon our nation, upon our church, and individuals. Specifically, we do pray for Cassandra as she is in Afghanistan. We pray for her, her safety. Also, missionaries and Christians that are still there. We pray, Father, for the effective activities of our military and the State Department there and and other governmental organizations. Pray that this situation will be resolved effectively and efficiently. We also pray, Father, for those who may be ill uh, here in the United States with the ongoing virus, particularly for Janet and Bill, as we've just heard for their uh, about their illnesses. And we know that there's others who are have that uh, the virus as well. We pray, Father, for their recovery. We ask for your blessing upon our study this evening. Pray, Father, that we would be edified by what we find here and God the Holy Spirit would assist us, would help us so that our time is truly effective and would honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as I was studying, I came upon uh, what we would probably call a devotional. And 
The devotional happens to come from ICR, which is the Institute for Creation and Research. Uh, it was written by one of the members there, and it occurred to me that this is probably very important for us. The title of it is that God loves the wicked. Now, we might say, well, how can this be? Well, it's because God loves his creation, and whether we are believers or unbelievers, God loves us. God loves believers who find themselves in evil activities. Of course, his righteousness and justice is involved in all of this. But let me read what is in this, as it's called, the days of praise. God loves the wicked. And this comes from a passage in Jonah in the Old Old Testament. And he prayed unto the Lord. And this is Jonah. This is chapter 4. So we know that Jonah has gone through a transition from I'm not going to Assyria to okay, I'll go, but I don't want to go. It's sort of the old idea of the child who is told to sit or told to stand and they don't want to. And we'll just say that they're asked to stand and the child might say, I may be standing, but I'm sitting inside. And this is where Jonah finds himself. And he, Jonah, prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? In other words, there was a revival there. And he did not want to go to Assyria because he didn't want this, what he would consider to be an enemy of Israel, and they were. He doesn't want a revival there. Therefore, I fled before, uh, I fled previously unto Tarsus. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentance thee of the evil. And uh, in other words, what he's saying is that God knows the evil that's ongoing and his desire is for the wicked or the evil to find God, believe in his plan, and therefore turn, what we see for repentance, turn from their evil ways. Well, that was not what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted the Assyrians to be destroyed. But that was not what was happening. The devotional starts with, Jonah understood that that God loved wicked people. Indeed, our text verse tells us that this was the very reason that he ran away from God. Jonah wanted God to destroy the sinful people of Nineveh and feared that God might forgive them if they repented or changed their mind. Ironically, Jonah acted wickedly by disobeying God's command to 
proclaim to the inhabitants because of his lack of compassion for wicked people, particularly the Ninevans. Even after Jonah was swallowed by the great fish and agreed to preach in Nineveh, he still had no love for the city's cruel inhabitants. As a prophet, Jonah undoubtedly wished to see God's sinful people of Israel to change their mind, to repent, and be spared from God's judgment. But he did not want God's mercy extended to their enemies. He was furious when God gave these repentant pagan people uh, an opportunity to believe. Jonah apparently failed to realize that he needed God's mercy as much as the people of Nineveh. Praise God that he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's found in 2 Peter 3.9. The world is full of wicked people. Those who hate or we could say reject or oppose God and his people. Yet God created these fallen creatures in his image. Find that in Genesis 1.27. Even though they reject him and all his commands, Jesus, the Lord, loves them and wants them to come to him, to come to him for deliverance. May every Christian be loving enough to tell people the truth, that they have sinned against their holy creator and incurred his righteous wrath. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 And it's important for us to realize that God does love the wicked. And because of that, we should take the opportunity, every chance we have, to give them the gospel. Hopefully, they will change their minds. All right. We are in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear this book of instruction and learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully obey all the terms of these instructions. Now, tonight, uh, last week I wanted to I wanted to review a couple of our outlines. The first one is the outline of Moses' speeches. First of all, we have his introduction. This comes from the Moody Bible Commentary. And I like to every now and then use uh, others' thoughts, uh, their provisions. And here we have the introduction, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Then we have Moses' first address, his first address. Historical review is what is called. And this is from chapter 1, 6, chapter 1, 6, to chapter 4, uh, 43. Moses' second address, point 3, is the stipulations of the law, and we see that it begins in chapter 444 and goes all the way to 2619. And again, this is not broken up specifically according to a topic, but according to Moses' 
address, his speeches, we could say. Fourth, we have Moses' third address, his third speech, blessings and curses. Chapter 27, 1 through chapter 28, 68. Chapter 28 is a very long chapter. Then verse 5, Moses' fourth address, the exhortation to obedience. Chapter 29, 1 through chapter 30, verse 20. And then we have the conclusion, point 6. Joshua is appointed and Moses' final acts. Chapter 31, 1 through 34, 12. Now, I give you this outline, and I'm going to show you the next outline, and that is going to be more topical. This is Moses' addresses and how he presents his material to the Israelites. And remember that this is the second generation, not the first generation. All right. So our next outline is the outline that you would find in the National or in the the Nestle uh, Study Bible. First of all, we have the prologue. Again, exactly the same. Chapter 1, 1 through 5. But a little difference here. Well, actually, the, the first one is a review of Israel's history. And so, uh, chapter 1, 6 through 4, 43 is, uh, the same. This is the first, the first address. Now, third, the law, the promises, and the covenant committee, uh, community. Chapter 4, 44, only to 1132. And, that's where we find ourselves tonight. Uh, I was going to show this last week and just forgot. Four, the development of the covenant fellowship. Chapter 12, 1 through 26, 19. Point five, the covenant renewal. Chapter 27, 1 through 30, 20. Point six, the last acts of Moses. You'll notice uh, 31, 1, all the way to 33, 29. And then we finish this with the epilogue. Start with a prologue, finish with an epilogue. This is Moses' death, Joshua's succession, and Moses' legacy. And we see this in chapter 34, 1 through 12. So this is two different approaches to the material, the subject that we find in Deuteronomy. And one, again, is focused on a break in Moses' addresses, but this one is more focused on the topic. Now tonight, we are in chapter 6, and let me, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 11. And again, I wanted to show this part of our chapter our, our study last week just kind of got ahead of myself. So we're talking now about the great commands and the warnings. And we're going to see this in chapter 6 through chapter 11, to the end of chapter 11. This is how it's going to break down. 
The command to love the Lord. That's chapter 6. So first of all, we have the command to love the Lord. Chapter 6. And the breakdown in chapter 6. First of all, the promised blessings of obedience. And that's what we have just prior to the commands that God is going to give Moses. First of all, 6, 1 through 3. The promised blessings of obedience. Chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. Secondly, the command and its importance. Chapter 6, 4 through 9. We have studied these two points, A and B. The promised blessings of obedience and the command. The command to love the Lord your God. And its importance. And we saw that in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Tonight, we will study point 3, the warning and prosperity. Chapter 6, 10 through 19. So we have that first section, 10 through 19. And then we finish the chapter with the transmission of the covenant. Chapter 6, 20 through 25. And we'll see that God tells the parents to teach their children about the covenant, the covenant that they have with God. Then next week, we'll move to chapter 7, and we'll we'll see holy war, because this is the guidance that Moses is going to give to Joshua and Israel as they cross over the Jordan And they will involve themselves, not just in war, but in war that God is going to be uh, directing them to do. And he will lead them. So this is our outline for tonight. Actually, last week uh, for tonight, uh, next week. And then we'll continue in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. All right. Uh, Let me just leave that up as we... Move to Deuteronomy, and it's Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. What I'd like to do, because uh, verses 10 through 25 uh, really are closely connected to the first nine verses, let me read through this chapter. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 6. Now this is the commandment. And this commandment we'll see in verse 5. Now this commandment and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that in order that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess in order that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandsons all the days of your life, and that your days, in order that we could say, that your days may be prolonged. Verse 3, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. And that really is to be careful to do it, to accomplish it. In order that it may be well with you, And in order that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. 
In other words, a very prosperous nation in the land. Four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the one here is not necessarily singularly, but it is, he is unique. There is only one God. Five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that is the main commandment. And as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, we're told that this uh, contains all of the commandments. Verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And we've seen, uh, at least in my opinion, that these are figures of speech. Uh, God was saying when you're using your hands, when you're traveling, when you're living in your home, the word of God, the commandments, the guidance that have been given to you should be so important to you. It's as if they were on your hand, that they were between your eyes and they were on the doorposts of your house. And many people, uh, many Jews, particularly Orthodox, but they take this literally and you'll very often see that. So, but I believe this is a figure of speech that simply tells us that Israel was to immerse themselves. It was to be on their minds all the time. Verse 10. Here we are. Now we have a caution, a warning to Israel. Verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large in beautiful cities which you did not build, Houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewed out wells which you did not dig. Wine, or vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be roused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Verse 16, let me read that as well. You shall not tempt the Lord your God, as you tempted him in Massah. Yeah, in Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, in order that it may be well with you, and in order that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out or to drive out 
all your enemies before you as the Lord has spoken. Pick up 25, uh, 20 through 25 uh, when we arrive at that location. Okay, first of all, bit of an intro here. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, Moses stated the commands, the judgments, and the statutes for the Israelites. And he's speaking to the second generation. And he emphasizes the importance of learning them, the commands, the judgments, the statutes, the importance of learning them, and then teaching them to their children. And we read that in verses 6 through 9. The commands were to be deeply ingrained in the souls of the Israelites so that it was part of their daily lives. Then, in verses 10, which is where we'll start here in a moment, through 19, Moses explains the reason for the commands to be part of their daily lives. Why? So that God would bless Israel in the land. This is the covenant. Israel, being obedient, would be blessed by God. It would be a very prosperous and a happy life. In our passage, verses 10 through 25, the blessings of God point to the giver of every good gift. We could read that in James 1, 16 through 17. Every good gift comes from the Father above. The fear of the Lord expresses itself in gratitude toward and in contentment with God. And so the fear of God, uh, we very often shy from saying that we are to have a fear of God, but we should. Otherwise, we probably don't have the appropriate type of respect for him. Here he is, the God of the universe, and he has a involvement in our lives that he can change in the blinking of an eye whatever is happening in our lives. So we should have that kind awe for who he is. So Moses warns Israel not to be ungrateful and not to develop a self-sufficient lifestyle. And so many people who are being prospered find themselves in that condition. Instruction and deliverance we could even call this redemptive history, is an anecdote against self-sufficiency because it teaches each generation to see what God has done in the past. And that's what is so important to God's guidance to us is to remember who he is and what he's done. We are to remember God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to us, even when we are faithless. All right, verse 10. Verse 10, so it shall be, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, first of all, to give you large and beautiful cities, which you did not build. Secondly, to give you houses, full of all good things, which you did not fill. 
we can say also to give you hewn out wells, which you did not dig, and to give you vineyards and olive trees, which you did not dig, which you did not plant. And then it says in verse, the last part of verse 11, when you have eaten and are full, verse 12, Moses now speaks of the test of prosperity. Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We'll stop right there. Moses warned the people not to forget that their possessions were God's gifts. And that's precisely how we should understand uh, gifts in our lives as well. God had not only delivered their ancestors from slavery, but he had also given them a prosperous land. The Israelites needed continually to praise and thank God for his mercy towards them. And this is something that God expects of us. What he has done for us deserves to be praised. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should be full of praise towards God for his provision of our eternal life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord was about to give the Israelites instant prosperity. They simply needed to be obedient. He was about to give them instant prosperity in their new land. But there is an inherent danger in prosperity. For when a person is prosperous, he tends to forget God. And that can so often happen in our lives. We, in prosperity, are so busy either involving ourselves in this prosperity or in pressing for additional prosperity. So we can forget God. We forget that at the height of our own prosperity that we find ourselves drifting away from God. And by the way, that, of course, we have many examples in the Old Testament. One of them, of course, is David. David was blessed beyond his imagination, but he became involved in sinful activities because he simply didn't need to go to war anymore. His military was accomplishing everything that he uh, needed to, to accomplish. And then, of course, we also have Solomon. Solomon, probably uh, the wisest man and probably also the richest man in history, finds himself involved in drifting away from God and being involved in immorality. One of the most difficult tests in life is passing the prosperity test. When we fail the prosperity test, we lose our focus on God. Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. The word here for serve is our Hebrew word avad and it means to serve, but it also has the sense and it's often used to worship. So you are to fear the Lord your God and we could say and serve or we could say and worship him. 
and shall take oaths in his name. I'm not going to drift too far in oaths here, but I think the emphasis here is in his name. Part of the Mosaic law was uh, an opportunity for individuals to take oaths, and it might have been oaths to serve. It might have been an oath to uh, devote themselves to a spiritual life. It may have been something like fasting, not cutting their hair. So there were oaths that they could take. But I think what's important here is not what kind of oaths they were, but they were to be made in his name. Why? Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. It's in the Lord that you make these oaths. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. Verse 15, most of our English versions have this as a a parenthesis, a part of it at least. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Now, we've studied the jealousness of God and jealous is a correct translation, but I think it's a better understanding, we could say interpretation. He's a zealous God. And when we say he's a zealous God, we say that he has an exclusivity that is predominant in his character. Since there is no other God, since the only God that anyone could ever hope to have is either looking at nature or creating idols for themselves. And so when God sees this, he is zealous for his creatures to worship him, to fear him, not to fear uh, the sun or the moon or to see or crocodiles or some other type of animal, trees maybe. No, he wants them to worship him. For the Lord your God is a zealous God among you, lest the anger, or I like the word justice here, the justice of the Lord your God, be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. The word here for destroy could be taken to be removed, to be ejected the land, but it also can mean that they would, in fact, be destroyed as a nation. So the Lord demanded absolute commitment to himself And that's what Avad is trying to communicate, to serve, to worship him. Out of gratitude, the people were to do this willingly. There is a Mosaic law that has requirements for them, but these requirements are supposed to be fulfilled willingly. When we talk about oaths, oaths should be in his name. The fact that God had revealed his name assures the people of God, God's goodness to them. He wanted them to look to him alone for refuge and sustenance. Jesus quotes this text when Satan was tempting him. He says, you shall, there's only one God that you should serve. So verses 13 through 15 also says, 
when they would come into the prosperity, the Israelites were to be all the more careful to fear him. In other words, when they crossed over into the land and God was going to bless them, was going to lead them, he was going to defeat the enemies, uh, they had at that point to be very careful not to lose their focus on him. The command to swear, to take oaths by the name of the Lord, reinforces the instructions to fear him. For one swears by God only. Okay, verse 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massah. Now, the word here for tempt is used twice, but the word for Massah is also a form of the word to tempt. And so in this verse, verse 16, we have the word nasa, which means to test. But when we turn that verb into a noun, it changes form and becomes masa. So you shall not, and I like test here better, better than to tempt. You shall not test the Lord your God as you tempted him in, we could say, in a place of testing. Verse 17, you shall diligently or carefully keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded you. Now, the word here for being careful, you shall diligently keep the commandments. This is a word that we're going to see very often through the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word shamar. Not shema, but it's shamar. And shamar generally is translated to guard or to keep. We can also say it's to observe. Here I think it is properly translated and we have shamar there twice. That's why instead of saying you shall keep by keeping the commandments, we change the first verb, shamar, to diligently, or another word is carefully. You shall diligently or carefully keep or guard, shamar, the commandments of the Lord your God. So this is emphasized the importance of focusing on the law, keeping them, guarding them, observing them. Verse 18, and you shall do what is right, and you shall do what's right and good in the proper sight of the Lord. I think a better word there for good, which is tov in the Hebrew, is what's proper. And you shall do what is right and what is proper in the sight of the Lord. The sight of the Lord is not only when God is watching you. Well, he's always watching you. So the word here for sight means that's how you should live your life all the time. First of all, in order that it may be well with you. And secondly, in order that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. So in verse 18, we have these two purposes. One is that it will be well with you. And we would say being well with you means that their lives 
will be blessed. Uh, that doesn't mean that they all would be blessed the same or that their blessings would be the same. But Israel entering the promised land, this is the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is going to be uh, a place where their lives will truly be well. And then secondly, in order that you may go in and possess the good land. So we know that Joshua is going to lead the second generation into the land. And they will, in fact, conquer the land. They will destroy all of the uh, concentrated areas of the Canaanites. And then it says, which the Lord swore to your fathers. Verse 19, to cast or to drive out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. So in verses 16 through 19, we see that God may test his children, but they may never test, or we could say, tempt him by their uh, rebelliousness or their sin. There's going to be God's opportunities to test them. And one of the reasons that they're going to be tested is because we have a tendency to float, to drift from where uh, we should be. God does not. God is perfect. God is immutable. And so there's no reason for God to be test. And we certainly should not test him. For the incident at Massah, we can find that in Exodus 17. They're told to keep what is right, and as I said, proper. Moses applied a lesson from the past and exhorted the new generation to be faithful to God. Canaan's false worship and its immorality could no longer be influenced, uh, could no longer influence the Israelites if the Canaanites were entirely, were entirely thrown out of the land. And that was the guidance that God had given to Moses, that he would go before them and they would destroy the strength of the Canaanites. But then the tribes were to remove the rest of those from the tribal areas. And we know from studying judges that that did not occur. Moses envisioned another sin to which the Israelites might be tempted in the new land, and that was testing the Lord, being unfaithful. This implies that at times uh, the people would face hardships, as they did at Massah, where they lacked water and thought that they would die of thirst. Rather than trusting God in this trial, they would test him by complaining and quarreling. In the future, the Israelites were to remember this embarrassing incident. In other words, Moses takes this event in the life of the first generation and says to them that they would be tested by similar situation incidences. They were to know that if they obeyed his commands, his stipulations and decrees, doing what is right and proper, then no matter what hardship they could enc- they would encounter, it would go well with them. All right, the last paragraph here, verses 20 through 25, and we see this is the transmission of the covenant. Chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. When your sons ask you in time, to come saying, ask you in time to come, to come 
saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, there's going to be a time uh, when uh, the children are going to say, Why? Why all these commands? Why all these statutes? Why all these judgments? Which we'll see that is a question that the children will ask uh, after the Israelites cross the Jordan. There's going to be monuments so that the children would say, why are these monuments here? And that's an opportunity to teach. So these children are going to have questions. Verse 21, then, so when your son asks, then you shall say to your son, first of all, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. And secondly, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And thirdly, the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his uh, household. Notice that not only were the, the signs and wonders absolutely remarkable, great, but they were severe. Verse 23 Then he brought us out from there in order that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always in order that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. And then verse 25 closes this passage. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe. There's our, our word to do, asa, careful to asa, all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Now, verse 25, when we arrive at verse 25, can easily be read differently because we start with the the second part of the second uh, second part of the passage first the way this could easily be probably more properly read is if if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the lord our god as he commanded us then it will be righteousness for us obedience brings righteousness to us. And this is not a phase one belief in the Lord Jesus Christ or in the deliverer, but this is phase two. This is sanctification. That's the righteousness. They would live a holy life. So verse 20, uh, verse 20, when your son asks you in, in, in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, statutes, and judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? This is a wonderful uh, sentence. It's a wonderful passage. And the son, really, I think in the New King James Version, maybe even in the New American Standard Bible, indicates that we don't have the word meaning here. The children simply say, what? What these testimonies, the statutes, judgments, which the Lord our God has commanded you. So it's more emphatic. They're saying, 
What? Why? Is another way of saying this. But God is um, adamant about the message to the children, telling them precisely what to say. And so now, beginning in verse 21, it says, Then you shall say to your son, First of all, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Secondly, the Lord brought us out. And the word here for brought us out is a hithel. He caused us to come out. You know, what's remarkable here, it says that he brought us out. Well, there was never going to be a departure if God didn't cause this to happen. Brought us out, caused us to go out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And that's what we see in the ten deeds, the ten matters, which we describe as plagues. And it was with a mighty hand. Verse 22, the third portion here is that the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and against all his household. Verse 23, then he brought us out from there in order that we might, that he might bring us to give us the land which our which was sworn to our fathers. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to observe, to do all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our benefit always, is the way I'd like to translate that. And then we finish this with, in order that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Honestly, a better translation of this last portion in order to preserve us as it is to this day. So it is God doing this, but he's doing it in order to preserve us. Now, as we finish verse 24 here, we see that Moses commanded the Israelites to teach their children the significance of their ritual, the judgments the commands, the statutes. In the same way, Christians should make sure their children know the meaning of their practices. Uh, Why do we go to church? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Teach the children why these things are important. The answer to the Israelites' child's question would include four components. We were slaves. Secondly, The Lord brought us out. Third, to give us the land. And fourth, that we have a challenge to respond to the action. Clearly, the redemption and the privileges are the Lord's. But the responsibility belongs to his children. So that fourth point is that we have a challenge to responsible, uh, to be responsible in our actions. And that's what we're going to see here in a moment uh, as it re- uh, relates to us. Each parent and their children were to regard themselves as though they had personally been brought forth from Egypt. So as Moses is teaching the Israelites, the parents and the children, you'll notice that he's speaking to them not as the first generation, 
well, excuse me, as a second generation, but as the, the first generation. He's saying that God brought you out of Egypt. Well, most of them would stand there and say, well, I wasn't brought out of Egypt. Uh, I'm not even sure I know where Egypt is. No, God is saying you. And he's referring to what occurred with the first generation and he's applying it to the second generation so that when they cross into the promised land, they will remember God's faithfulness to them. In each generation, each believing Hebrew was to regard himself or herself as a principal receiver of God's mercy. So they would understand what God has done for them. Verse 25, Then it will be righteous, righteousness for us, if we are careful to observe, to do all these commandments before the Lord our God has commanded us. And I said, I would like to turn that around. I would like to say, if we are careful, and here's our word, shamar, again. If we are careful, if we are uh, to guard, is another way of saying this. We are to keep, we are to be diligent, is another way of saying this, to observe, to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, then it will be righteousness. We could say, experiential sanctification for us. So Moses did not offer the people a works righteousness by keeping the law. Instead, the righteousness is that relationship that they would have with God. And the righteousness is their spiritual lives. God initiated this relationship and his children responded to it in obedience, as an expression of love. Once again, Moses reminded his audience, the Israelites, of the crucial need to pass on the covenant values to their children. The situation presented here concretely illustrates the commands in verses 6 through 9, teaching your children. Moses envisioned a home where the word of God is discussed openly as a part of every day. And that's what you're doing and what you're seeing, where you're going, rising up, going to bed at night. So this is what he's emphasizing. When a young son asked about the meaning of the Israelite law, his father was to use the following model or pattern, we could say in explaining it to him. First of all, the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. Secondly, God miraculously delivered the Israelites and judged the Egyptians. Third, this marvelous work was in accord with his ancient promise to the patriarchs. So the emphasis there would be, this was a promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God keeps his promises. And then, fourth, God gave his word in the form of decrees so that the Israelites might always prosper. They would prosper by being obedient and by fearing their God. Nearing the beginning of this chapter, Moses stressed the need of parents to love him 
with their total being. Now, as the chapter closes, Moses indicated that one aspect of loving and obeying uh, and obeying God is to pass that same love for him on to their children. And that's critical for families, not only then, but today. So the application as we close chapter 6. The measure of a believer's love of God is not only his own obedience to God's mandates, but also how well that love is expressed and demonstrated to his children. In a world that is filled with cosmic opposition to God, it is critical that parents devotedly teach their children and also live a godly example to their children. As Paul wrote to his spiritual children, imitate me, imitate me. He teaches this in 1 Corinthians 4.16. We will see that either Sunday or Sunday after that as we finish 1 Corinthians 4. But Paul wrote to his spiritual children, imitate me. Parents should strive to be godly examples to the degree that they would say to their children, imitate me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for chapter 6. We probably have been able to milk just a portion of it because there's so much there. As God provides the guidance and the instruction to obey and to obey and teach. Father, we're thankful that um, Moses has written this, that God has given it to us. And we pray, Father, as we read the Word of God, that we would understand the importance of learning the Word of God, teaching it to others, but also living it. Living it, Father, because we know that if we're, if we're living it, you will bless us. Father, we're thankful that one of the greatest blessings that we have is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. We're thankful, Father, for his finished work on the cross. And because of that finished work on the cross, uh, we no longer have the guilt of sin. We simply need to believe in his finished work on the cross. And we will have a relationship with you that is eternal. And we will be blessed as we live our spiritual lives. Help us, Father, to be obedient and to serve or to worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.